When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant, Billah. Go to her that she may give you birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Billah, as a wife, and Jacob went to her. And Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called him Dan. Rachel's servant, Billah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled from my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Rachel said that she has ceased spirit, when Lay saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpha, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Lay's servant, Zilpha, bore Jacob a son. And Lay said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Lay's servant, Zilpha, bore Jacob a second son. And Lay said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called, her, she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Lay, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Will you take away my, my son's mandrakes as, as well? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went to meet him and said, you must come to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he laid with her that night, and Jacob listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, and so she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what a Mother's Day text. <laughs> you know, usually when pastors uh, choose a, a text for Mother's Day, they do something cute, like four ways to honor your mother this Mother's Day. Instead, I wanted to pick one way to honor four mothers this, this Mother's Day. What do you do with this, you know? It's, it's a confusing passage. It's a difficult passage. Um, and in all seriousness, we're going through a book of the Bible called Genesis, and Genesis is full of passages like this, and oftentimes it's the first book of the Bible that people read, and they get to stuff, and they just like, oh, I don't know, you know, and they just keep going. They don't ever think about it. And while I would love to stop and do an honor your mother's sermon, my, my own mother is here this morning. Don't look at her, okay? Uh, and uh, I don't know if I'm the only one, but like, 
someone meeting my mom is about like seeing me naked. Like, I just feel completely without clothes in that moment, where it's like, yes, you understand everything about me now, because you've met my mother. Um, and luckily, my mother's a delightful person. So, uh, that, you know, so am I. There we go. Um, <laughs> If we stopped every holiday and did a special sermon on every holiday, I would never get through Genesis, okay? So I have to just keep going. But in the Lord's providence, he did give us a text about mothers and a confusing text about mothers and one that actually is very applicable, not just to the mothers in the crowd, but to everyone in the crowd. Because what Rachel is experiencing is something that's universal to what all of us are experiencing, which is I see something that I want why can't I have it? It's good. This is a good thing. I've prayed for this thing. The Lord says it's a blessing. It's a good thing. Why won't God give me this good thing that I want? And to compound the, the matter, I see other people enjoying it. Why can't I have this very thing? Whether that be a job, a certain school, a spouse, or children, as it is in the case of Rachel, I think that we can all understand what she's going through. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying the life of Jacob. I need to do a little bit of catch up so that you can understand where we're at in case you haven't been here with us during this time. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, a character that most people have heard of throughout the scripture. He's the son of Isaac. A few chapters ago, so a few weeks in, our, in the way that we think about things, when I, if I say chapter or if I say a few weeks ago, I basically mean a few chapters ago. It, it was probably many, many years, actually, from when it happened in real life. But a few chapters ago, we saw Jacob, as the younger son, steal his older, his older brother's blessing. His older brother didn't like that very much, and his older brother was from New Hampshire. He was a man's man, and so not really. He was just like a man's man, gruff kind of guy. Um, and uh, he was about ready to kill Jacob, so Jacob started running. And he run, ran 400 miles to his Uncle Laban's house. The second he showed up at his Uncle Laban's area, he sees all these workers, and he's like, hey, do you guys know my Uncle Laban? They're like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, well, how's he doing? Good. And then Rachel walks up. And Rachel is a bombshell. She's beautiful. She walks up, and, and Jacob is immediately like, I've got to impress this girl. So he goes, and he lifts this huge stone off of the well and moves it. And then Rachel takes him home, and Jacob is like, Whatever, name your price, Laban. Whatever you want, I will do so that I can marry your daughter, Rachel. And he said, how about work for me for seven years? And so Jacob said, you got it. <laughs> and then Laban, meanwhile, Rachel's father, he's conniving. He's a trickster himself. And so the trickster, Jacob, is about to get tricked by the even greater trickster, Laban, because on his wedding night, Laban had an older daughter named Leah. And Leah was not the most beautiful. She was not as pretty as Rachel, but on the wedding night, and probably thanks to a veil covering her face and probably a lot of alcohol, um, Laban slipped Leah in there, and it says, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob 
was astonished. And he went to Laban and he said, what have you done? Why have you tricked me? Why am I with Leah? And he said, oh, well, I don't know about how they do it where you're from. But where we're from, the older daughter is given in marriage first, before the younger daughter. And so he said, well, what do I have to do to marry Rachel? And he said, well, finish this week of Leah's wedding commitments, and then well, I'll give you Rachel, but you have to commit to stay for seven more years. And so that's what Jacob did. He, sta- he finished Leah's week. He got married again to Rachel, her sister, her younger sister, her more beautiful sister, and then he worked for Laban for seven more years. At that point, he has two wives, and, and Leah desperately wants his affection, but she can't get it. And so she starts having kids, thinking that this will win over her husband Jacob. But it never does. And so we ended last week with Leah finally coming to the realization that no matter whether Jacob loves her or not, she has to find her pleasure and delight in the Lord because she has her fourth child. His name is Judah. She says, this time I'll praise God. This time I'll praise the Lord. And that's where we pick up our story is with, J- with Rachel. Now, today, because there's a lot of text here, and again, it would take me uh, years to get through all of Genesis, I want to cover the next two chapters very briefly, and then we're going to come back and camp out on Rachel. Okay, so let me tell you very briefly what happens in chapters 30 and 31. As we just read, chapter 30, the first half is Jacob ends up with four wives. We'll get into the details of that in just a moment. And they just can't stop having children. He has 12 sons and at least one daughter. And the 12 sons go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is a huge theme. If you, want, if you read the Old Testament, you're going to read about the tribes. And it's a huge theme throughout. And this is where it came from. This is the origin story of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not a very glamorous origin story. They should get a better writer, some might think. This is a theme that's carried all the way into the New Testament when Jesus goes through and finds his 12 disciples. And uh, they reflect the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus is, is using this thematic uh, reference here. So the theme that we have in chapters 30 and 31 is this, that Jacob goes to a faraway place in exile away from the promised land and God multiplies him. He has a lot of children. And not only that, he's very good at his job. Everything he does turns to gold. It's like everything is just going great. He works as a shepherd and the flocks flourish. They do so well. And Laban sees this and he doesn't want to let Jacob go. And so when Jacob finally comes to Laban and says, hey, it's my time to go back to my, promise, to my land, Laban tries to rip Jacob off multiple times. It says that he changed his wages 10 times. He's just very shady in-law family business practice going on here. He's trying to get Jacob to stay. And eventually Jacob has to kind of get out in the middle of um, the, the season, shearing season. Laban has gone with workers out to shear all the sheep. And Jacob says, hey, we're going to get out of here. So they pack up their things and they leave. Laban chases them down, and they come to a truce in the wilderness. And the whole point of this thing, okay, so this is a long story. I'm leaving out a lot of different details and even some confusing things uh, that we're not going to get into all here. But the whole thing is meant to reflect and to remind you of the Exodus story. 
This is like the prequel to the Exodus story. It's, it's like a, a little foreshadowing to what we happen. Because what happened in the Exodus, but the people of God went to a faraway land. While they were in a faraway land, they multiplied. They had many children. God blessed the work that they put their hands to there. And they flourished while they were in exile. And then Laban is kind of this Pharaoh character who does not want to see his workers go his cheap labor escape, and so he runs away, and just like in Exodus, they, they meet in the wilderness, and they're separated at that time. Pharaoh's ending is a lot uh, sadder than, than Laban's ending. Yeah. I wish that the Bible was easier to understand sometimes. You know, when we read these chapters, we think, well, where's the moral in that? But the Bible is an invitation to observe carefully and to think not just what's happening in the immediate thing, in the immediate story, but what's happening in the overall picture of the Bible and God's authorship of the Bible. You know, I tell this story, I was hanging out with some friends who aren't Christians, and they were kind of asking me about my job and about uh, teaching, and I started sharing with them the story. And just like last week, it's like, well, that's confusing. What is the moral in that? And the Bible's not written with cute little morals all the time. If you try to write a cute little moral onto every story, you're going to fail. Because really the Bible is a book with one moral, which is people are messed up and God is good. And that's pretty much every single story. People are messed up and God is good. But there's a lot to learn as we go through these stories. So what I want to do, well, first of all, the re- one reason why I'm not doing all of this, because the theme for this whole thing is like flourishing in exile. But a couple of months ago, I asked Rich Nykirk, uh, one of our members over here, to preach for us next week. I'm, I'm on vacation this week. Um, and Rich, after a lot of prayer, came and said, I really want to talk about what it means to flourish in exile. And I was like, that's great. We're going to work on your text together and, and what it means to be an ambassador for Christ and all that. And then I got to this Monday, got to exploring this text, and I said, uh-oh. It's the same theme, and I'm not going to give them two sermons. I'm not going to steal all of his glory. Uh, And so I decided just to zero in on Rachel here and her experience with having children. It's a little bit easier anyways for us to understand what's happening with that one. So we're excited about Rich coming in and preaching for us next week, and we're going to zoom in on, uh, on Rachel for the rest of our time here. But like I said, what Rachel experiences is universal for all of us, which is she wants something so bad that she feels like she could die. I have four points for us. Four points, church. Point number one, discontentment is fueled by jealousy. Point number two, discontentment leads to self-sufficient disappointment. Point number three is disappointment leads to superstitious disillusionment. And point number four is only God can satisfy. Only God can satisfy. Which of us have not felt discontent, disappointed, and disillusioned? We've all been there at some point. Point number one, discontentment is fueled by jealousy. This is something that's a little easy to miss if you're not paying attention. At the end of last week, we talked about Leah. And what was the one thing that Leah so desperately wanted, church? 
She just wanted to feel loved by her husband. That's all she wanted. So she kept having babies, saying, maybe now he'll notice me. Maybe now he'll pay attention to me. And then we get to Rachel, her sister. And what's the one thing that Rachel wants? It's not what she has. What Rachel has is all the love and affection that she can get from Jacob. She is his favorite wife. She is the one that he didn't work just seven years for. He worked 14 years for her. And it says that, those seven, that the first seven years, they were like just mere days because Jacob so loved Rachel. She has the affection that Leah so wants. But what does she want? But the thing that Leah has, babies. She wants kids. You know, the text actually says that she goes to Jacob and she says, Jacob, give me babies or I will die which is like really intense. And I was talking to my wife about this and you know, not everyone's gonna feel this, but she was like, it does kind of feel that way sometimes. Like she was like, there's some truth to that. And I know that's not universal, not currently. Lord willing, we, we're not having any more, you know. But <laughs> when we were wanting to have children, <laughs> um, that, that is how it felt sometimes. And uh, there is some truth to that, that it does feel that way often. But I just love the, I love the way that the text brings out this thing that we've all experienced, which is the heart wants what the heart can't have. Leah wants what Rachel has. Rachel wants what Leah has. Getting the thing that they want isn't actually going to satisfy them. Because the second that they get it, they'll want something else. It might not be the second, but it will be soon after. Isn't it that way so often that you can't be happy with the things you have, but you just want what someone else has? The desire for children is a very natural desire. Over my 11 years as a pastor in Boston, I have noticed, and today might be different, but I've noticed a little bit of a trend and that Mother's Day tends to be one of the lower-attended Sundays of every year. And I've been wondering, why is Mother's Day low-attended? And I have a few theories. You know, some of them might involve brunch, um, which is, you know, the church's number one competitor on a Sunday morning. But some of the other ones probably are more like infertility is really hard. And Rachel's experiencing infertility. And I'll tell you that I know a lot of people that have skipped Mother's Day just because they know that mothers are going to be celebrated and it's a difficult time to be around what you so want. In between my first child and my second child, my wife and I, my wife experienced a miscarriage. And this was like, I didn't think that would be that painful or difficult, but guys, in retrospect, or even in that moment, it was so hard. It was just a really challenging thing. And I remember there was another family that we were close with that, that experienced pregnancy at about the same time that we did, and it was a successful pregnancy. They had a child. And, you know, I don't remember this feeling of jealousy, but I do remember this feeling of, I don't want to be around them. And so when you think about Rachel, all she wants is a child and she can't have a child. And who is she surrounded by? But 
her ugly big sister who can't stop having babies. Just four babies running around everywhere, and all she wants is a child. She can't avoid it. She's stuck with it. And so it's not simply that this is something that she wants. It's that she looks at Leah, and Leah has what she wants, and that jealousy is fueling her discontentment. Rachel's discontentment is fueled by jealousy. Joseph Epstein, famous author, he wrote a book called Envy. And he says this about jealousy. He says, of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. Which, if you think about it, is pretty true. Only envy is no fun at all. I mean, greed at the moment is kind of fun. Lust can be fun at the moment. Anger, sloth, they all give you benefit at that moment. But only envy is it that you're miserable the moment you feel it and every single time you think about it. Jealousy is no fun at all, but yet we all experience it. There's a biography of a famous novelist named Gore Vidal entitled, Every Time a Friend Succeeds, Something Inside of Me Dies. Delightful human, I'm sure. Um, But I think we all can resonate with that. When we see someone getting the thing that we want, something inside of us dies. This is such a good description of just what it means to be a person completely overcome by jealousy. As Christians, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But what jealousy does is it flips it upside down and you rejoice in another's mourning and you mourn in another's rejoicing. It makes it impossible for you to be happy for someone else's success. And you look at Rachel, and she couldn't just be happy for Leah. She wanted what Leah had. Jealousy is a poison that destroys your ability to enjoy anything. Jealousy is a poison that destroys your ability to enjoy anything. And if jealousy is a poison, let me tell you this. It is a necessary ingredient to social media. It is just baked into the formula. Jealousy, you, you can't, it's just like a necessary ingredient. They throw it in there like it's like some paprika. And as you scroll through it, you feel jealous. And I wish I could preach a more like balanced sermon on social media, okay? I, I could get up here and talk about, well, you know, there's the pros and the cons. And really, you know, I just want to be a fundamentalist on social media, and I just want to scream at you and tell you to stop doing it, okay? That's how I feel about it, because I think it's making you miserable. I think it actually is making you miserable. And I would encourage just social, you know, drop media. Just, just be social, hang out with one another, enjoy your time, text some friends, Get together. Because I think that as you scroll, it feeds this jealousy monster that lives within you that wants not just what other people have, but the lives that other people have. Just because you're not looking at pornography doesn't mean that your scrolling is like pure and fine. A lot of us give in to greed porn or jealousy porn as we scroll through everything that we see online. 
So Rachel is experiencing this poison that's, that's killing her ability to be happy. So she says, give me a baby or I will die. Like, life is not worth living. And look at how Jacob responds. Verse 2. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So Jacob says a true statement here. But he wasn't very nice about it, was he? Jacob responds with a catechism instead of compassion. Jacob responds with a catechism instead of compassion. He says, am I God? Get out of here. I can't solve that for you. I'm trying, <laughs> but I can't solve it for you. When you look at Jacob's father and his grandfather, these are men who compassionately waited, sinfully, but compassionately waited and pled with the Lord for years upon years upon years for their wives to, to finally conceive. Abraham prayed earnestly for years that his wife would conceive. Isaac prayed earnestly for his wife to conceive. Now, Jacob's wife, his beloved wife, the one that he loves the most, wants to conceive, and he says, get out of here, woman, I'm not God. He doesn't respond compassionately. May it not be so in our church. May our church have that right, sound doctrine, but a gospel culture that goes with it, that embodies what we believe. We're not going to respond with catechisms. We're going to respond with compassion, and the catechisms come later. We need both. Nothing that Jacob said was wrong. It just wasn't kind, and he has to be kind. <laughs> He's not a model husband. It makes you think about how active he is in the home. It makes me wonder. And as you read the story, Jacob seems just like a passive participant. Oh, you want to give me your servant as another wife? Sounds good. Okay, let's go. Oh, I'm going to go sleep with Leah tonight? Okay, uh, you know, whatever. He's just getting passed around. He's just a passive participant. He's not, he's not active. It seems like he's really good at his career. Laban applauds him and says, hey, God's blessed us tremendously. You're good at your career. But he's a failure at home. May it not be so. May it not be so for us. May our dads be active and compassionate and caring in the home and not just focused in the workplace. Discontentment is fueled by jealousy. Point number two is that discontentment leads to self-sufficient disappointment. Discontentment leads to self-sufficient disappointment. So Rachel, she feels jealous. Instead of taking this desire to the Lord... Instead of praying to God, she goes straight to Jacob and says, give me children. And when Jacob responds negatively, what does she do? She says, I'm going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to give my servant Bilhah to Jacob so that she can be his wife, so that she can have children, so that her children can be my children. You see, she's found a way to get what she wants, but it's not the right way. We had this whole sermon about the ways and the means of the Lord matter. It's not just the results, but it's the ways and the means. And here, she's ignoring the ways and the means. Verse 3, then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she might give birth on my behalf, that I may have children through her. So she, gave her, so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. 
Now there's a, a TV show that quotes this exact passage frequently, Handmaid's Tale. Has anybody ever seen that? Um, it, I've only seen a few episodes, but it was so dark I couldn't continue. It's in this near future American dystopian where it's a Christian-themed nightmare. And what's happened, I think it's been like nuclear holocaust or something, I'm not even sure, but something's happened to where many of the women are infertile in the area and, uh, or in the world. And so what ends up happening is they find the women that are still fertile and they kind of herd them up and they give them to important men who have wives who are infertile. And these women serve as handmaids and it's a miserable life that they live where they are taken advantage of and their own personal thoughts are not um, regarded. They don't care. And so they're just baby-making machines. And as they, the baby is being conceived, they read this passage. It is so sick and twisted. And I feel like I need to say this every week, because as we read Genesis, it's one of those things that we need to read and remember. But just because it's in the Bible does not mean that it's endorsed by God. Just because it's in the Bible does not mean it's endorsed by God. This is the number one thing that your just like normal coworker will say is like, yeah, the Bible has some really messed up stuff in it. You know, I don't believe in a God that would allow that or that would endorse that. And it's like, well, not everything in the Bible is endorsed. You have to read the passage. There's a lot of arguments that you can get into really detailed and there's a really good reason to believe in God. But a lot of the arguments that people bring up are just silly and they haven't ever actually looked at the passage. Here, it's super obvious, not endorsed, not a method that is endorsed whatsoever. So Rachel gives her servant Bilhah. Uh, she has a child through Bilhah, and she's happy for a minute. You know, Leah, uh, Rachel gets what she wants, and then she gets another child through Bilhah. She has two children through Bilhah, and then Leah looks over and she says, well, whatever she can do, I can do better. And she gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob. And Zilpah also has two children. So where's Rachel after this? She's not content with what she has. No, Leah also has that thing. I'm back to what I originally wanted, which are biological children. She was content for a moment with the surrogate child, but now she's not anymore. She wants bio kids again. And she goes and asks Jacob once again, Self-sufficiency, my friends, getting what we want ourselves is our normal way of life. Self-sufficiency and self-reliance is the default. When you feel, I, I was contemplating this earlier. When I feel jealous or discontent, that is a temporary feeling these days for me. I don't, I don't experience that quite like I used to, and I think that the reason why that is isn't because I'm so godly. It's because I have Amazon. <laughs> I have a steady salary, and I have Amazon. And if I feel like I want something, I just click three buttons and I get it, you know? And, like, it's not big stuff. It's just little stuff for the most part. I'm not, like, a big things kind of guy. Our hearts are a black hole of desire. And self-sufficiency and self-reliance is our default. I, was, I read a book that was really influential by a, name, a man named Richard Foster. And in this book, he, he wrote, it's on the spiritual disciplines, and he was talking about the discipline of simplicity. And we could learn so much from what he has to say. He said that he, he's a gardener, and he realized that he needed, his, his gloves wore completely out. 
He could not, no longer use his gloves. For me, if my, my garden gloves wear out, I open Amazon on my phone and I order more garden gloves. But he said, I'm going to pray about this for one week before I go to purchase my garden gloves. And so he set his, you know, he didn't have a phone, but he, he just said, I'm going to pray about it. And he prayed about it. And before the week was over, his next door neighbor said, hey, I have an old pair of garden gloves. You want them? That's the Lord meeting his need. Through simplicity, he decided that he didn't need to buy the gloves immediately. He would see if the Lord would meet his need in another kind of way. And how often do we just try to meet our desires through self-reliance and self-sufficiency, just the way that Rachel did? Self-sufficient, I'm gonna get a baby my way. But you know what, when she got it, she wasn't happy. And what you ultimately want isn't the thing, but it's the happiness, right? Which led her to her next step, which is this. Disappointment leads to superstitious disillusionment. Disappointment leads to superstitious disillusionment. Verse 14, this is after she gave away her handmaiden and had two childs by the handmaiden. But all of a sudden, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now, if you're anything like me, you're wondering, what the heck is a mandrake? Gordon Wenham, uh, which is a famous uh, Bible scholar, he defines it like this. A mandrake is a perennial Mediterranean plant that bears bluish flowers in winter and yellowish plum-sized fruit in summer. In ancient times, mandrakes were famed for arousing sexual desire and for helping barren women conceive. So they were thought to be an aphrodisiac and a fertility drug. But friends, it's not like there were scientific studies there. Maybe they help, maybe they don't. It's it's kind of like an essential oil. And and, in fact... um, Uh, Sorry, I'm coming after your essential oils. Someone just got upset. Uh, Look, keep your diffusers. I'm just not sure what that actually does. Um, Magic beans, I don't know. Um, In fact, some people sell mandrakes in essential oil format. You can buy them, probably from one of these multi-level marketing companies where your friends have you to a party and then they try to sell you things and then you feel guilty because you can't leave until you buy something from them. Oh, it's terrible. Sorry. (laughs) Well, you know how I feel. Um, Mandrakes were superstition. It was a magic love potion. She thought, maybe this will satisfy me now. You can find superstition like this everywhere you look. Because if you can't get it yourself... You just got to do something superstitious. It's like rooting for your favorite sports team, like wearing the same jersey to every game. You know, some guys do that. They'll wear the same jersey. It ends up smelling like a, like a middle school or locker room by the end of the season. It's like every time I wear this jersey, my team wins. It's the, it's the rally cap. She's putting on a rally cap. She's got the magic beans. She's trying to make it work. She's doing the superstition thing. And sometimes we can have superstition in Jesus' name. When I was in college... I uh, worked at an off-campus bookstore for a year or two, I don't remember. Um, 
I think my uncle found me the job because I was very bad at being a mechanics assistant. He was like, you need to find a job where you can sit more often and where you don't have to actually work. Um, so I'm going to find you a, a bookstore job. Um, so I uh, worked at this bookstore. I remember opening day, the first year it was ever open. And I just, I, I don't know why this is what comes to mind, but I just remember the owner saying, oh, I'm going to church this weekend because if I don't, nothing will go right. Superstition in Jesus' name. There's nothing in the Bible about when you go to church, things work out better for you. The Bible's about the grace of God saving you from your sins, but yet, do we not use church, going to church, reading our Bible as superstition? Oh, I'm having a terrible day today. It's because I didn't read my Bible this morning. That's superstition in Jesus' name. God wants to bless you. And yes, you have to go to church. You have to read your Bible. And over time, your life will be miserable. But it's not like you're just going to have bad luck. You can't use church as a good luck charm. Not like a mandrake. So Leah gives, well, so they strike a deal. Rachel says, give me some mandrakes. And Leah is like, well, not that easy. You know, they're my son's mandrakes. Um, it just feels like a dirty word as I say it. And then um, she says, well, if you give me your son's mandrakes, then Jacob can sleep with you tonight. Because Leah, she's been barren for a long time now. She's stopped having babies. But after Rachel strikes this deal, um, Jacob goes with Leah that night, the passive participant that he is, and Leah conceives. Oh, she must have been furious. She got the mandrakes, but then all of a sudden, Leah starts having babies again. And she doesn't just have one baby, she has three babies. She has two more sons and a daughter. And now Rachel is left destitute once again. She's tried everything. She's demanded a child from Jacob. She's tried self-sufficiency. She's tried the superstitious love potion. But the Lord has graciously caused every single one of Rachel's plans to fail. The Lord has graciously caused every single one of Rachel's plans and schemes to fail. And why is that? Because only God can satisfy. Point number four. Only God can satisfy. Friends, what is the cure to jealousy? What is the cure to jealousy? What is the cure to that feeling in your heart when you want something that's not yours? And when I was writing this sermon, this is what I wrote the first time. I wrote, and it sounds good, okay? To delight in the Lord and to desire him above all else. That is the cure. So let's see how Rachel did that. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. I don't see anything about Rachel delighting in God. I see God remembering Rachel. It's not up to us. God moves when he moves. And here it says that God remembered Rachel and he decided to satisfy her. He decided to listen to her. Now, when it says God remembered Rachel, what's it talking about when it says remember Rachel? This is the same word, same Hebrew word that shows up in Genesis when we see God remember Noah. God remembered Noah. Now, did God forget about Noah as it was raining day in and day out? And he's like, oh yeah, Noah's out there 
with the boat. Let me drain the water and stop the rain. No, God remembered in the sense that God's covenant promises come to fulfillment in timely times. God remains faithful to his covenant commitments through timely intervention. That's what it means for God to remember. He remains faithful to his covenant commitments through timely interventions. And here, God remembered Rachel. God steps in right on time, my friends. He steps in right on time. Now, would it have been different if Rachel, instead of trying to go the self-sufficient route, instead of trying to go the superstitious route, had just gone straight to the Lord? Probably. The Lord loves to answer prayers. We don't know. But we know that the Lord graciously caused Rachel to see that these kids are not her own. And that if she has kids, it's not because she wanted kids, it's because the Lord delights to give her these children. He graciously caused every one of her plans and schemes to fail so that he could bless her and that so she could know that it was only with the Lord's help that she gets the thing that she most desires. It's a gift of God's grace. Verse 23, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. It's God who took away her reproach. It wasn't Jacob. It wasn't Bilhah. It wasn't the mandrakes. It was only God that took away her reproach. And it's only God who takes away my reproach. It's not the things that I can do to work my fingers down to the bone so that God would love me more, but it's only Jesus Christ who came from on high and came down here to live the life I should have lived and die the death that I should have died. It's only because of what Jesus has done that my reproach has been taken away, where I have been made clean and where God God is now satisfied to love me. It's not me who's taken away my reproach. It's only God who has taken away my reproach. Amen? Verse 24. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Now that's a little forthright, don't you think? That's like a little presumptuous that she names him Joseph and says, may the Lord add to me another son. (laughs) It's like DJ Khaled up in here, another one. You know, when I first heard him say that, I was like, well, that's a little presumptuous. And now I'm like, well, I guess it is another one, you know? It's just always another one with DJ Khaled. And here Rachel is, another one. I want another one. And the Lord does it. It feels like she's pressing her luck. Friends, are you ever feeling like you're pressing your luck with the Lord? Does it, does it ever feel like you're pressing your luck with the Lord? Like if you ask him for one more thing, you don't want to be greedy, you know? But here he delights to give her good things. The Lord is rich in mercy. He delights to give us more than what we deserve. And one child is more than what we deserve. Two child children is more than what she deserved. And he would ultimately give it through Benjamin. Friends, you can't really push your luck with God. He loves to be kind to his people. So let me ask you this. What is your heart desiring? 
What is that one thing you want that you see other people enjoying that you scroll through or social media has your number, you know? They just give you video after video of this one thing you really want. Do you trust God to live up to his commitments? Do you trust God to live up to his commitments? Because Romans 8 says, he, did, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Lord delights to satisfy his people. And it might not be the way that you want, but when your plans come to an end of yourself, you might see that the Lord remembers you too and that he cares for you too. And that he's not going to do you the disservice of letting your plans come to fruition when he can satisfy your heart alone. He can satisfy your heart. And when you recognize that he has remembered you, then you can delight in him alone and be satisfied with him. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gave us a sacred meal to point us forward to the day when we would be fully sat satisfied. The day is coming when he'll return. We'll see him face to face. We'll give up our crown. We'll give up our cross and we'll receive a crown, as that song was saying. The day is coming when we will be fully satisfied. But, and it will be like a feast. It'll be the wedding feast of the Lamb. And... The Lord gave us a sacred meal that we practice every week. And it's kind of like the appetizers to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The appetizers to the wedding feast that we enjoy this communion meal together. Church, let's stand as we renew our, our commitment to the Lord and be reminded of his grace. Father, I pray that you would satisfy our hearts, that you would help us to delight in your love, which... Um, goes from end to end. Uh, God, as we prepare our hearts to receive this meal, would you be with those who don't know you? Would they say nothing in this world can satisfy? I'm seeing that. It's all temporary. And I need you. I need God to remember me as well. And Father, I pray that you would help us to know that you care for us and that you are enough for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.